0: This is Steve Kim. Wesley Huff. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. When we think about science, there are a number of names that loom large, if you will, but probably the one that looms the largest for many people is the name Einstein. It's such an iconic name with his uh, hair, and I've seen some pictures of him goofing around with his tongue sticking out and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Just a genius of a man. I would be interested in knowing, for one, what his religious views might have been. And that's sort of partly what you talked about, right, Wesley, when you had that event. Can you, first of all, tell our listeners what this event was about specifically and who you had there? Because you had some really big names there.
1: Yeah, so this was an event that took place at Knox Presbyterian Church in downtown Toronto. And I had the privilege of being able to emcee the event. It was really fun. The keynote address was given by the Andreas Idris Professor of Science and Religion, at Oxford University. And he, Alistair McGrath is also the director of the Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion and a fellow of Harris Manchester College. And so Alistair McGrath is really this uh, multifaceted character who has uh, a number of different skills under his belt. He's a scientist, he's a theologian, he's a historian, he's a biographer. And so many of the listeners will know Probably some of his books, he's written a number of just sort of introductions to Christian theology and to historical theology and systematic theology. Uh, In fact, one of the stories from my my own life is that um, when I was in my undergraduate studies I actually went to school for uh, sociology and law with the full intention of going into the police force. And I was spending all my free time, um, you know, chasing down Mormon missionaries and visiting the local mosque and dialoguing with the imam and uh, reading theological and uh, religious literature. And I was actually sitting on the couch in my then girlfriend, now wife's apartment, reading Alistair McGrath's Introduction to Systematic Theology. And my wife came in and and looked at me and said, hey, Wes, uh, you know what? You don't want to be a cop. <laughs> and it was at that moment that I I really realized, yeah, you know what, you're right, I don't. And so in that sense, Alistair McGrath at least contributed somewhat to my own faith journey in realizing God's rerouting of uh, where he really wanted me from policing into uh, theology and apologetics. But in that sense, I mean, uh, Dr. McGrath has he has a large canon uh, if you want to put it that way he responded to Richard Dawkins the god delusion uh, with the Dawkins delusion
0: and so he, he's a colleague of Richard Dawkins too isn't he like I, I think I heard that they kind of in a sense grew up in similar settings and they both went into the sciences to biology if I recall correctly but then they went radically different ways yeah
1: uh, they were both individuals who didn't necessarily grow up in the church. Alistair McGrath grew up in, as as far as I understand, a, a secular, albeit uh, I think it was nominal Anglican, um, mm-hmm. simply by attrition of being British. But Yeah, they both grew up in these similar environments, both went into studying science, and uh, eventually both ended up teaching at Oxford University, Uh, Richard Dawkins being the current emeritus fellow of New College Oxford, but he taught uh, as a professor of of science at Oxford University uh, for quite some time. Uh, So Dawkins and and McGrath have sort of a similar background, and yet there's a clear divergence. And McGrath talks about this in in a number of different places in his books and in his public addresses where he talks about it was actually looking at the complexity of science and seeing that order that led him to God and the belief in something more. And so in terms of the event that happened uh, a couple of weeks back, Dr. McGrath was talking, giving a keynote address on the topic uh, of the title Uh, at least, was Einstein's God, A Theory of Everything That Matters. And this is based on his upcoming book, uh, that's that's coming out which is goes by the the same name Einstein's God uh, a theory of everything that matters and uh, that book it goes into I think the the subheading is a brief guide to Einstein relativity and his surprising thoughts on God and so part of this discussion was talking about this relationship between the concept of God and and religion throughout history but also on the fact that you have this like you said um, Steve this towering character within the the history of science who although grew up grew up in a nominal Jewish household and didn't necessarily come to a faith in any particular religion still expressed at least to some degree a belief in something bigger than himself.
0: It really flies in the face of what many people, how many people uh, construe science and religion, right? At least the relationship between the two, because often the thought is the more scientific you become, the more secular you become, the more godless you become. Certainly, Alistair McGrath himself is no slouch of a a scholar. Uh, He's also a scientist. He sees no contradiction between the two, whereas somebody like Richard Dawkins, uh, who, again, went a radically different way, he would say, you know, science is the only way, really. But we're seeing even other towering figures in the history of science, like Galileo, although we often hear about him in our science classrooms, only insofar as, you know, his relationship with the established church at the time is concerned, right? That's all we hear about. But then nobody ever seems to care to mention that he himself was a Christian. Um, Same thing with Isaac Newton, you know, Francis Bacon, and in modern times too, uh, lots of scientists who are Christians or at least religious believers of some sort.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's left out in the discussion somewhat uh, is the reality that Galileo, uh, although he got some pushback, uh, unnecessary pushback, might I add, uh, from the religious establishment at the time. I mean, he he's famous for uh, saying things like the Bible tells us how or the Bible tells us rather how to go to heaven, uh, not necessarily how the heavens go. And so he he was a, a believer in the fact that there was a God, and more specifically, that that was the God of the Bible. But you're exactly right, Steve, there has been this idea of pitting science against religion. I think of the book by uh, Jerry Coyne um, I think it was from twenty fifteen, called "Faith versus Fact: Why Science and Religion Are Incompatible," and and so you do see this idea within the the popular culture. But I think individuals like um, McGrath, or or you could think of John Lennox, uh, another he's a professor at Oxford uh, in in the area of mathematics. And these sorts of individuals really break that stereotype and show, no, actually science has a big debt to pay to not only individuals who themselves believed in God and established the foundations of what we refer to as as modern science but more than that the fact that we see predictability and reliability in the world can only truly be answered can only be grounded in the fact that that predictability comes from something that is ultimately objective that holds to it. And Einstein himself uh, in uh, out of my later years, which was published in 1956, uh, says one of one may say the eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. Now that that seems like a bit of a weird quote to us. Why is one of the eternal mysteries of the world it's the fact that we can comprehend it? Well, I think to a certain degree, Einstein was a little bit freaked out that the beautiful and elegant mathematics that he could do on a piece of paper actually applied to the cosmos, to the way the universe works, the comprehensibility. In other words, what we can comprehend through mathematical formula and then apply it to the world around us. Einstein in his own publication says, that's weird. (laughs) That's freaky. How is it? that the universe works on these amazing mathematical principles and yet produces minds like ours who now understand the mathematical beauty that applies to the universe it's almost like this whole thing was a setup job right like it's almost
0: like this whole thing came from an ordered mind exactly i think we don't really often think about order in that way do we because i mean At the end of the day, we rely on it all the time. Order, in a sense, is presupposed, even as we're communicating, you and me, Wesley, right? Because language is an ordered thing. We trust in this kind of um, ordered universe all the time, but we don't really seem to think a whole lot about, well what is the nature of order? Like, is it just, how do we explain this? Is it just the way the universe simply is and there's no more explanation to it? But that seems a little too, it's a very convenient stopping point.
1: Yeah, I think realistically, if we're honest with ourselves, the only way to truly ground an objective order in the universe, the only way we are able to be sure that the laws of physics and logic will apply tomorrow, like they apply today, is to ground that in something outside of us. And we see this time and time again, uh, that you have these ideas that theologians have been talking about for centuries, and scientists, as they progress, and as we progress as humanity in our knowledge of these things, actually realize that A lot of these things that these theologians have been talking about for decades, centuries, millennia, really account for the reality of the world, that which corresponds to logic and reality, i.e. truth. Uh, Just going back a little bit in terms of that idea uh, that is sometimes held pitting science uh, against faith, I was r- reminded that there's this guy uh, in the uh, the turn of the century, a guy named Max Planck, who is a German theoretical physicist, and he actually said that the portals of the temples of science have, you must have faith, written all over them. And that despite this idea that science is often pitted against faith, as if faith is just something you believe, as Dawkins defines it, uh, belief in spite of evidence, uh, well, physicists, the top of their field, in fact, Max Planck was a Nobel Prize winner in in 1918 in the field of physics. What he means by saying that the portals of the temples of science have you must have faith written all over them, is the idea that we assume this sort of predictability in the universe. I mean, you can't do a science experiment without assuming that your results are going to be orderly. And the question is, how do we account for that order in the
0: universe? I think it's worth mentioning again that science actually needs to presuppose a heck of a lot before it can even get off the ground, right? So one of those might be, you know, logical and mathematical truths like we're, we're kind of talking about here, right? There's this order in the universe. You have to actually assume that before you can start science but if you try to prove logic and math using science now you're kind of just going in a circle right because science requires logic and math to get started and then there are other things like um that there is actually this mind-independent external world, because that's what science tries to get at, is the external world. Well, you're already presupposing that this external world is real, and so there, there are a number of things that you just kind of have to presuppose and, shall we say, take it by faith. Now, one of the things that Einstein tried to do, I mean, he's known for his uh, famous equation E equals mc squared and all of that, but... More than that, he wanted to find a theory of everything, didn't he? Mm -hmm. But ultimately, he failed to do that. And and in his quest, what he saw was this need for some kind of a god figure behind everything. What did Dr. McGrath and others take from that?
1: Yeah, or at least an explanation for the rationality that we see in the universe. I think there is this interesting idea within... The work of of Einstein and and some others that they they walk right up to the line of saying you know there has to be an explanation for this rationality and for this this predictability and this comprehensibility in the universe, um, but they're not totally willing to cross that line. I heard it uh, described of Jordan Peterson one by uh, I think it was Esther O'Reilly. She said the chasm that that stands in front of Jordan Peterson to cross over to Christianity is only inches wide, but it's miles deep. And just the idea that, you know, these individuals, they walk right up until that line. You see this in, you know, Jordan Peterson or Brett Weinstein or uh, Tom Holland, the historian, not the actor who played Um, (laughs) Spider-Man. These individuals who maybe are modern Einsteins, these great minds who are pontificating about these things in the universe. I mean, Jordan Peterson and Brett Weinstein are famous for uh, saying that Christianity is a convenient untruth in that it serves purposes for us to explain the world around us. And in Brett Weinstein's case, um, he says, well, this is just a a convenient lie, but it's a useful lie. And we've evolved to explain the world around us, to explain these things uh, that we, that seem to be beyond us. And actually, um, I should mention that uh, Brett Weinstein and Alistair McGrath, uh, went back and forth on that topic on the Unbelievable Radio podcast only a, a couple of weeks before the event of Einstein's God here uh, at in Toronto, And so for the listeners, I would really recommend going and, if you're not already subscribed to Unbelievable Radio with Justin Briarly, to go do that, but particularly to listen to his back and forth with him and Brett Weinstein, because they discuss this idea of Christianity in particular, but religious values as a whole, answer a lot of the ultimate questions that we have. And uh, Brett simply says that although they answer these questions... Um, He can't take that leap from them being convenient ideas to being actually objectively true ideas. And it's a very interesting conversation.
0: Yeah, um, I'm just curious. I mean, we always have to be careful when we start psychoanalyzing. And we have to hold our psychoanalysis with very open hands. But what do you think is going on there? Why are so many intelligent men that are so close to the edge of this this chasm, and the chasm is only inches wide. Why are they having such a hard time crossing over? Then, you know, there are all
1: sorts of reasons. I think of the fact that Aristotle talks about the idea that we—you never believe anything simply on an intellectual basis, right? He he has this idea of of pathos, um, logos, and. Um, What's the third one? Ethos, yeah, and and the idea that you know there's the intellectual, there's the social, and then there's the personal, and you don't simply make a decision based on any one in particular. It's a combination of them, and so I think um, there could be a host of reasons why these individuals see the values and really seem to come, be walking in the right direction and yet never want to truly get to that destination. We can think of people in our own lives who there's something holding them back, whether that's family or personal ideas or just the love of sin. You know, the Bible Itself in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 18 says uh, that we're suppressing uh, the truth in unrighteousness, and that word suppression is an interesting word katakonton in the greek it literally means to hold down you think of like a if you have one of those those blow-up balls uh, in the pool during the summer and you're you push it under the water and it's trying to shoot up that's almost the illusion that this verse is saying you know this thing is trying everything uh, about um, physics is saying it should be going up and we're pushing it down, we're holding it down. And that's what, what Paul in Romans 1 is saying that we love our sin and we're suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. And some of sometimes I look at these individuals, I think of even in my own academic my own academic career and endeavors, knowing so many brilliant people who know the scriptures, particularly in the field of biblical studies who are not believers. Uh, a lot of them knowing you know, uh, listening to them talk or sitting down with them and thinking, I will never know as much about the Bible as some of these guys. And yet they don't believe it. And you think, well, why is that? Well, I think we can know a lot about God without knowing God personally. And it's really, uh, at least in the last, um, the last five years with my, my grad education, speaking with and interacting with these brilliant individuals who know so much within the realm of theology and biblical studies and yet seeing that faith truly is a gift you know yes there's that aspect of the trust and understanding but time and time again it's clear that the that faith is a gift that god gives and some of the most brilliant people i know understand conceptually these theological ideas and yet something doesn't take and and what is that well it's the fact that they haven't put their trust in Jesus Christ as their ultimate savior they know about god they know about his word but they don't truly know god in that personal way and so in terms of your question steve i think at the end of the day, I don't really know uh, why one individual like Einstein or uh, Jordan Peterson or Brett Weinstein or or Tom Holland, any of these individuals, why they don't necessarily take that step over that chasm. But I know that they're at least looking in the right places. Just to, to illustrate this, uh, many of the listers uh, may or may not know the name Albert Camus he was a french philosopher in the 20th century who actually in his day was uh, a bigger deal uh, than dawkins um, ever has been now and camus was famous for his his ideas that the universe is silent that really we there is no purpose in meaning in the universe and that the universe is is silent and Before his death in a tragic car accident in uh, January of 1960, uh, he actually wrote this letter uh, where he says that God's solution consisted first in expressing pain. And he says that God man suffers, too, with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to God since he suffers and dies. And that the night on Galgotha is an important night in the history of man only because in its shadows the divinity seemingly abandoned its traditional privilege and lived through to the end, despair, including death and agony. And it's this very strange piece of Camus' body of work because it seems to it seems to be pointing to an understanding of the substitution. Of Christ, that Christ died on behalf of our sins. And so at the end of the day, I don't know if Albert Camus ever put his his trust in Jesus, if he ever believed that um, that Jesus was who he said he was. But it's interesting when you look at these snippets that they surely indicate that he longed for it to be true, even if he didn't necessarily believe it.
0: It reminds me so much of C.S. Lewis. For one, just imagine the kind of powerhouse these guys might be if they put their trust in Jesus, the impact that they could have on Christendom. C.S. Lewis, certainly, after his conversion from atheism to Christianity, has had a huge impact and continues to. And secondly, something that Lewis said really stuck out to me, that in his apologetic, basically what he tries to do is first... Show people why the gospel is beautiful and then show them that it's actually true, right? And there is something about The beauty of Christian worldview. If something is true, but it is still odious to us, we're not going to be willing to accept it. But when we recognize the beauty of it, even though we don't accept it, we will want to. And what I see in a lot of these people, Jordan Peterson, Brett Weinstein, and all of them, is that they see the beauty of it. They just have a hard time now finally accepting it. They want to, they're not there yet.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, Blaise Pascal uh, said something similar when he said that men despise religion, they hate it and are afraid that it might be true. And Pascal, uh, this, this Christian philosopher, says the cure for this is to first show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. And then he says for Christians next, make it attractive, make good men wish it were true, and then show them that it is. I think we can take a, a lot away from that and look And be encouraged by individuals um, like Einstein on a number of fronts. Not only that we can have confidence that this ordered universe it echoes something that's greater than itself, but also that, like we've been talking about, the more and more brilliant men look into these things, the more and more they're sort of. forced into conclusions that agree and ultimately theologians have been been saying for centuries they agree with the Christian worldview. I mean I even think of of the fact that it wasn't all that long ago within easily the last 150 years the consensus on the origin of the universe was that the origin was or that the universe rather was eternal. This was the idea that the universe was eternal and then when the idea of the singularity in the Big Bang started to be proposed a lot of scientists started saying that's nonsense the only people who believe that are the people who believe in the Bible and there were some quite big names in the field of of cosmology and, and physics who pushed back on the idea of the universe starting at a specific point in time, if for no other reason, of course, I think the evidence pointed to that, but if for no other reason, then it seemed to be too close for comfort to what Christians had been saying from the beginning, right? In the beginning.
0: Right, exactly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's funny, I, I was just talking of this yesterday, because I was doing the thinking series at the church where I serve, and we were going over the question, does God exist? And uh, I shared the Kalam cosmological argument with them. So, you know, whatever begins to exist as a cause and the universe began to exist. And so the universe has a cause. And so to support that second premise that the universe began to exist, one of the um, supports, if you will, of that premise was Big Bang cosmology that I use now. And I had to kind of qualify that a little bit because in our congregation, among some circles, people look at the Big Bang with suspicion. So I like to point this out to them saying, you know, it's a bit ironic that in some Christian circles, certainly not all, I I would even say this sort of a, a suspicion against the Big Bang is in a minority kind of a view. But the name Big Bang was actually coined by an atheist, Sir Fred Hoyle, who was a physicist, to make fun of it, precisely because a lot of atheist scientists like Sir Fred Hoyle noticed the sort of the theological implications of a universe that had a birthday. And so... It just allows that divine foot in the door, and it's a little too close for comfort, like you said. And so they wanted to mock it, and that's how the name Big Bang came along. And it's ironic that today, in some Christian circles, that name is regarded with suspicion. And so then I tell them, hey, look, even if you're a young earth creationist, this is still helpful for you to know because when you're speaking with your friends, say, you know, atheists and agnostics who hold to the Big Bang theory, you can point that out to them. even given your worldview, there seems to be a cause of the universe that's, you know, spaceless, immaterial, timeless, unchanging, immensely powerful and personal. So I, I think Big Bang is nothing to be afraid of. In fact, I, I think it, it is a huge help um, in making a case for God.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I I've received similar pushback uh, in different in different contexts on using that phrase. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand that that. When we use the phrase Big Bang, we're it, it, we're not confusing and conflating that with Neo-Darwinian evolution. The Big Bang is a theory within the field of cosmology. Evolution is a theory within the field of biology. They're entirely different disciplines.
0: Yeah well it's time for us to wrap up here we'll perhaps each share our final thoughts my thought is um, if you're listening to this and you're an atheist and you're a materialist that you think this world is all there is my hope is that this episode somehow opens up the door for you a little bit i hope this episode makes your world a little bit more enchanted that it might open you up to the possibility that this world might be more than just the physical things that are colliding blindly, but there is someone who sees, who takes care of all of these things. Whether you believe it or not, I hope that this at least opens the door for you. Do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I think
1: um, what this reminds me of is that, you know, our, our world. Has the echoes and a longing for the transcendent uh, we understand I think uh that there's something more in the secular age that we live in there 's something that goes beyond just the here and the now the the matter and motion. I think that's what individuals like Einstein, um, through some of their musings of trying to answer these ultimate questions, are looking at and looking for. The philosopher James K. Smith, he calls this idea the dynamics of disenchantment, Um, that in other words, to live in a secular world is to live in a world where the cosmos has been flattened and that our society has tried to hold on to transcendent values of meaning and purpose and reality. But outside of the framework of mystery and transcendence itself, you can't give a rational foundation for it. That the European enlightenment in particular, one of its end results was divorcing the creator from the creation. And I think we know that that's, that's a, uh, an unnatural divorce, uh, we can see that uh, this dynamic of disenchantment within this naturalistic framework, it doesn't answer the questions that we have. And I think that's why we've seen a shift away from Dawkins and and Hitchens and the new atheists and into individuals like uh, Jordan Peterson and Brett Weinstein making the waves that they are, uh, because they're giving credence to the fact that... We have this realization that the world we live in, there's something more. So the I guess my, my closing point would be when Dr. McGrath's book, A Theory of Everything That Matters, A Brief Guide to Einstein Relativity and His Surprising Thoughts on God, when that comes out, uh, I think it actually, it might have come out this month or um, in November, but make sure to get the book, to read it, to see um, some of the things that he draws on uh, that I think Steve you and I have just been giving a brief overview on yeah there's there's so much more that can be drawn out from this topic but I think at at the end of the day I think we can we can hold the confidence the faith the trust uh, that in the Christian worldview we have a foundation for these objective realities in the world
0: All right. Sounds great. That's a good place to end on. Uh, So we'll wrap up here. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. We'll come back next week with another edition of the AC Podcast. Until then, take care of yourselves. Bye for now.